invite you to open your Bibles, please, to Micah chapter 6. Let's join our hearts together in prayer. Father, we are amazed by your grace. It doesn't ever lose its wonder, its strength, its glory, because you never lose your glory. You are filled with glory. And we sense that glory from time to time, and we look forward to the day that we're in that glorious presence forever. Help us this morning that we would humble ourselves before you, that you would use your word to draw us into a closer relationship with you, that you would use your word to encourage our hearts and to direct our steps. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I've been working on my, my speed and agility been working on, on increasing my vertical leap and my, my straight line speed. And I was thinking that I might challenge LeBron James to a, to a vertical, vertical leaping contest. Now, if you know LeBron James, he's 6 feet 8 inches tall and he's like 250 plus pounds. He can't jump all that high. Apparently he jumps about 40 inches straight up, which is over 3.5 feet. That's uh, just under three and a half feet, excuse me. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm not thinking that, that that's that great of an idea. But my speed has been picking up, and so I was thinking about challenging Usain Bolt. It's a good name, Usain, Insane, Usain Bolt. Now, I don't know if you know anything about Usain Bolt, but he holds the world record in the, the 100 meter and the 200 meter. 100 meter dash, 9.58 seconds. Should I challenge him to a to a race? <laughs> what are you saying? I don't, I don't understand. Most of us would never compare ourselves with superstar athletes. I'm not sure how much we'd like it if one of them approached us and challenged us. I don't think we'd respond like, let's do this thing. I, I don't think it would go that way. But what is interesting and sobering is here in Micah chapter 6, there will be a comparison between Israel's acts and God's acts. He basically says, let's compare. Let's compare. The setting is a courtroom scene. And what we're going to do this morning is going to work ourselves through the text. My, my outline is not its normal, normal five of these or four of these. It's really just kind of markers through the text to kind of follow through. Because I think the message of this text is very forthright. We're in a courtroom setting, and in verses 1 to, it lets us know that God is taking Israel to court. God takes Israel to court. In verses 1 and 2, the Bible says this, Here now what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, O you mountains, the Lord's complaint, and you strong foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a complaint against his people, and he will contend with Israel. He first tells them to plead their case. And he tells them in pleading their case to do so to the mountains and the hills. Why? Because they've been there. The mountains and hills were there when Israel has done all the things that 
they have done, and as they plead their case about whatever accusation they may have against God, the hills were there to see whatever this accusation is. And so he says, plead your case, bring your charges, say it before the mountain, say it before the hills, but know this, I have a complaint. Now the word complaint is the word indictment. Indictment. Used two times in verse 2, and then the first two times it's used in the noun form, and then a separate verb form at the end of verse 2, it says, and he will contend with Israel. He will indict Israel. He will bring an accusation against Israel. So God is taking Israel to court. It's very clear. In verses 3 through 5, what we'll notice is that God calls Israel to the stand. God calls Israel to the stand, and here's what he says. Verse 3. O oh my people, what have I done to you? And how have I wearied you? Testify against me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt. I redeemed you from the house of bondage. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Oh, my people, remember now what Balak, king of Moab, counseled. And what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him. From Acacia Grove to Gilgal, that you may know the righteousness of the Lord. He starts off and he asks them, how have I mistreated you? So I'm, I'm observing, I'm observing you. I'm observing your actions. I'm observing your heart. I, I, I know the thoughts and intents of your heart. I'm observing you and I'm wondering what it is I've done to you. What have I, how have I mistreated you? What are my wrong actions? And when I read this the first time, I, I mentioned, I, I emphasized done to you. We need to keep that in the back of your mind. Done to you. And then he asks them, in what way? How have I wearied you? How have I wearied you? What does he mean, wearying them? It means just what it means, to wear down. Did God require too much and supply too little? That's what that question intimates, doesn't it? How have I wearied you? I, I, I'm, I'm extracting so much from you and not giving you enough to give you what you need to supply this. Uh, have, I, have I overburdened you in some way? I want you to keep this in mind, and I want us to, to look, please, in 1 Kings chapter 18. We're going to come back to Micah, so put something there to hold your place. But 1 Kings 18. And while you're turning there, I'm going to remind you of something you may or may not be aware of. In Isaiah 16, Isaiah speaks of the inhabitants of Moab wearying themselves on the high place. He's talking about this foreign nation, not too, too foreign. We know about the Moabites. They're just to the east of Israel. They're wearying themselves on the high place. Now, you know what happens in high places. That's where they worshiped. And he says, the Moabites, they go up on the high place and they're wearying themselves. Well, what does that mean exactly? Well, I think 1 Kings chapter 18 is going to give us a little bit of a, a glimpse of what Isaiah is talking about, about the Moabites wearying themselves. And it'll give us a little bit of insight as to God's question. How have I wearied you? In what way have I wearied you? In 1 Kings 18, the context is obvious. You'll remember it's from Elijah. Elijah is being challenged or is challenging the prophets of, ba 
uh, Baal. They have this, this deal. The, the prophets of Baal are going to cry out to their gods, and, 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 and if he brings down fire from heaven, Elijah's done with. If that doesn't work and Elijah calls down fire from his God and it, and it comes down, then the, the prophets of Baal are done with. So we know the context. It's very, very straightforward. Take a look, please, in 1 Kings 18, beginning in verse 26. Speaking of the prophets of Baal, so they took the bull which was given them and they prepared it and called on the name of Baal from morning even till noon, saying, Oh, Baal, hear us! But there was no voice. No one answered. Then they leapt about the altar which they had made. And so it was at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is meditating, or he is busy, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he's sleeping and must be awakened. So they cried aloud and cut themselves. Listen. As, as was their custom. This is nothing new for them. Won't you please hear us? Won't you please listen to us? We need help. They wearied themselves. They cut themselves with what? With knives, it says, and lances until the blood gushed out of them. You see them wearying themselves? You see them wearying themselves? They're wearying themselves because there is no God of Baal. There's no such thing. And so they toil and labor and strain and they're, they're wearied. And what do they get out of this deal? A big fat nothing. Verse 29. And when midday was past, they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. But there was what? No voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. That's what it's like to weary someone. That's what it's like to weary someone. Ah, we've got our Paul Harvey moment. The rest of the story. Look at verse 30 and following. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. So the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. And Elijah took twelve stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Israel shall be your name. Then with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench around the altar large enough to hold two seas of seed. And he put the wood in order, cut the bull in pieces, and laid it on the wood, and said, Fill four water pots with water, and pour it on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. Then he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. So the water ran all around the altar. And he also filled the trench with water. And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that you are the Lord God, and that you have turned their hearts back to you again. Then... The fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and it licked up the water that was in the trench. Now when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, He is God! The Lord, He is God! And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let one of them escape. And it goes on. What, what's the point here? What's the point? 
hear these prophets of Baal. They are wearying themselves. Please, won't you send fire? And nothing came. Elijah says, pour on the water. I know what's going to happen. God, hear me. Fulfill your promises. Let them know your God. And guess what God did? Fire from heaven that lapped up the water. Listen, how has he wearied you? Does your God weary you? Does he make you fatigued? You've got you've to work so diligently so he'll finally listen to you? This is, this is what people that have another God but the God of the universe, this is what they do day in and day out. And God says to his people, how have I wearied you? Testify against me. Bring the, tra- the charges. Bring the accusation. Come on, br- bring it. And then God simply reminds them of the facts. After he asks them these questions, he just simply reminds them of the facts. First of all, instead of me wearying you, I want to remind you that I redeemed you. I redeemed you from wearisome bondage. You were wearied. Yes, you were. And you know what? You cried out to me, and I heard your groans. And I delivered you from the house of wearisome bondage. Look at verse 4. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt. I redeemed you from the house of bondage. God says, instead of me wearying you, I delivered you from wearying yourselves. And yet you're acting as though I've, I've taxed you and burdened you so deeply that you don't know what to do with yourself. Not only did he do this for them, he also provided them with leadership. It says in verse 4, And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. So I didn't just deliver you, I delivered you and I gave you someone to lead you. A really great quote from Walt Kaiser Jr. He wrote, Moses was given, the lawgiver, to instruct them. Aaron, the high priest, to offer atonement for their sins. And Miriam, the prophetess and song leader, to lead them in praising God. And so God gave them leadership. This is what God has done. He hasn't done something to them. He's done something for them. There's only two of the areas. He's also, thirdly, God protected them against oppressors. It says in verse 5, Oh, my people, remember now what Balak, king of Moab, counseled? And what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him? What did Balak want? Curse Israel! Guess what Balaam was allowed to do? Bless them. Bless my people. The oppressor wants to curse them, and God says, no, bless them. Do they deserve that blessing? No! Just like we don't deserve one ounce of the blessing that God floods into our lives. We are paupers and desperate in need, and God floods us with blessings. God gives us blessing when we deserve curse. So God protected them against their oppressors. And then God provided them victory. He says at the end of verse 5, from Acacia Grove to Gilgal, You know what that is? Acacia Grove is on the east side of the Jordan River. And Gilgal is on the west side of the River Jordan. Guess what that means? I took care of you before the Jordan River. I took care of you after the Jordan River. I brought you into the land of promise, just like I told you I would. 
He's provided victory. Listen, what have I done to you? How have I mistreated you? How have I wearied you? All I've done is delivered you from bondage. What I've done is I've provided you with leadership so you could be where you needed to be. I've, I've thwarted your oppressors so that they could no more haunt you. And then I brought you into the promised land. I've given you victory. I've done everything for you. Why? Why are you dealing with me so treacherously? Why did you do all this? Why did he remind them of this? He reminds Israel of these events so that they would know the righteousness of the Lord. But the word righteousness is in the plural. So our English Standard Version, which interprets it or translates it, so you might know the righteous acts of the Lord is, is accurate in its assessment. When, when you look at this, I, I, the reason he brings all this to their attention is so they would know God's righteous acts. He brought them to court, remember, right? Testify against me. Plead, plead your case. State your case. The mountains and the hills are listening. But just know, you know, they also saw my acts. And I just want you to know, what have I done to you? Well, where, how have I wearied you? And I have a case to bring against you. I'm going to contend with you. I have an indictment against you. I want you to, to, to know all of my righteous acts. Why, why do you act as you do? What is Israel's response? Now, we can't say this is actually Israel's response. This is Micah's proposal of Israel's response in verses 6 and 7. So Micah, under the inspiration of the Spirit, is saying, well, this is your mindset. This is your kind of response you'll give to me, to, to all I've just presented to you. Verse 6 and 7. With what shall I come before the Lord? Pause. You know what they just said? They said, oh, I know how I can fix all this. I can give you something. I can do something for you. Just, just take a pause. Okay, everyone? Ready? Ready? You ready for this? God doesn't need anything. He's quite okay the way he is. He doesn't need my gift. He doesn't need my sacrifice. He doesn't need my goody-two-shoes nature. He doesn't need anything from me. So why is it that my response to God's accusation after he just told me everything he's done for me is to say, well, what shall I bring before you? Because that's how we fix problems. We hurt our wife's, wife's feelings and we buy them something. Or we do something. Well, I finally paint that fence that you've been asking me to paint so you'll feel better about life. That's not, it's nice that you did it. It's good that you painted the fence. It's good that you fixed the window or whatever the problem might be that you did to, to kind of make amends, but that's not, the, that's not fixing it. She doesn't want the fence, she wants you. And that's what we're coming to here. What shall I bring before you? Oh, oh, I have a great idea. Shall I come before him with a burnt offering? Or, or maybe burnt offerings? With calves a year old? Shall I bring a burnt offering? Verse 7, will the Lord be pleased with 10,000 rams? excuse me, thousands of rams, 10,000 rivers of oil. Oh, let's ratchet it up a notch. Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? They're just ratcheting up this intensity one thing after another. What can I do? What can I do? How can I fix this problem? I know I can do something. I must do something. God, do you want burnt offerings? How many? Thousands of rams? How much? 10,000 rivers of oil? How deep the sacrifice? My firstborn son! Now let's answer this question before God does. 
I'm going to answer this question with some other words of God from other texts, just to get our mind fresh on this. Israel's response to God's indictment of them is to say, what can we do to fix this problem? Well, let's, let's listen to the testimony of Scripture. First of all, Isaiah 1, this will be on the screen behind me. The Bible says this. God is talking to Israel. says, when you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of conventions, uh, convocations. I cannot endure iniquity in solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Similar context, Isaiah, excuse me, Amos 5. Amos writes, I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. Oh, I know, we'll sing a bitter praise song. We'll sing a louder praise song. We'll sing a newfangled praise song. We'll bring you this. We'll do this. We'll, we'll keep the feast. We'll, bring, we'll celebrate the, the, this season and that season. God says, no, 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 no. No. When has God ever looked upon the, the face of flesh and been happy about it? When has man's flesh ever done anything that pleased God? Never. Psalm 40 makes this statement, and again, it's God speaking, essentially. It says, In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. So it's the psalmist speaking to God. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. Now you might think at first glance, why did you just reference Psalm 40? I think this is very important, friends. We're talking about the fact that God doesn't want the sacrifices, he doesn't want the offerings, he's not pleased with the noise of the song, it's not about that. Hebrews 10 makes it very clear that the speaker in Psalm 40, when this I delight to do your will is uh, spoken, is Jesus. I delight to do your will. God is not delighted in burnt offerings and sacrifice. God is not delighted. But then the response is, I have come to do your will. Isaiah 53 tells us that God was pleased, pleased to bruise him. Three times in the Gospels, the statement from the Father to the Son is, in whom I am well pleased. Listen, instead of Israel being required to offer her firstborn son, God offered his. And yet, the people say, what can I do? What can I bring? What can I give? And I think people are still saying it today. They're still saying it. 
Maybe you're still saying it, friend. Maybe you still think when you, when you err, let's call it what it is, when you sin, when you rebel against God and you choose yourself, it's like we get back to the old mindset of, I, I, I must do penance. I must do something that will alleviate this guilt and remove the, the, star, the scar and the stain of what I've done. And the reality is, God has already removed the scar and the stain of what you've done. He's done it by pouring out His wrath upon His Son. He offered His once-born, His only-born Son, His first-born Son, He offered Him on the cross to bear your sin and the debt of your sin and the guilt of your sin. He doesn't say, now, now come and give me a special offering and then we can, be, we can be good, me and you. The payment has been made. The price has been determined. And it's already been accomplished. We think that we can do something for God and the reality, he's done, done something for us. Now, as the scene in the courtroom turns a little bit, now God says, now this is what I want. This is what I want. Verse 8, Micah 6, 8. We'll say with this, God's desires are simple. He says, He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. God's desires are simple. Micah says, it's no mystery. He has shown you what's good. There's definitely an intimation back to Deuteronomy 10 and verse 12 in this text. And that Deuteronomy 10, 12 says this, Now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear, fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Do you know what it means to fear the Lord? It's not like, wow, he's going to, He's going to squish me one of these days, and I'm really afraid. It's not that. Fearing the Lord is recognizing who He is and seeing myself in the light of who He is. He's there, I'm here. The fear of the Lord is simply, if you want to narrow it down to the very base of what it is, it's surrendering your heart and your mind to Jesus or to God. If you want to go to the the more generic concept here. Now, God's not generic. What I mean is God, Jesus, Spirit. And we're getting very specific. The fear of the Lord is what? It's, it's surrendering my heart to him. I, I, you're the king, and I'm a subject of the king. And one of our big struggles, friends, whether we admit it or not, is that we, we see ourselves as the king. We want what we want how we want it, when we want it. This is our problem. The fear of the Lord is, God, we want what you want, how you want it, when you want it. The fear of the Lord. It's no mystery what God wants. His desires are simple. He has told you, O oh man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? It's to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve him. How? With all your heart. I don't want what you have. I just want you. Now, that's, you know, d depending on your perspective, well, how does that sound to you when someone says, I, I don't want what you have, I want you? Well, it can sound good, or you can, you can kind of look at it from a negative. Think about this. If you knew you, and you were God, would you want you? 
I would think, hmm, I think I'm going to be able to find someone better than this. Nah, I'm going to skip by that guy. Let's move on. That one over there, that one's a, that one's a doll. That one's, that's a wonderful person over there. I'm going to get that one. But, but that's not how it works. God chose me, and he wants me. He wants my heart. Consequently, when he has your heart, he has everything you have. But that's another story altogether, right? That's another story altogether. But it's not because he wants what you have, because he has everything. He's not lacking in any way. He has no wrong motivation in obtaining you for himself. It's amazing. It really is. What does the Lord require? Well, he says to do justly. God's righteous acts have been recounted, right, in verses 4, 5, and 6. 4 and 5, sorry. 4 and 5. He's already told us about his righteous acts. I want you to know my righteous acts. As we get to verses 9 through 12, he's going to describe Israel's acts, which is why we're at this courtroom scene. Take a look beginning at verse 9. The Lord's voice cries to the city, Wisdom shall see your name. Hear the rod, who has appointed it? Are there yet the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked? And the short measure that is an abomination? You know what a short measure is? I've got, I've got a, ten pounds of potatoes here for you. There's really seven and a half. I'm going to sell this to you for a really great price. Here you go. Let's exchange your shekels for my... Ten pounds of potatoes. That's, that's what he's saying. Shorting. He's shorting people. Verse 12. Shall I count pure those with wicked scales and with a bag of deceitful weights? Same concept. Different portion. Now, now it's, I'm going to buy your product. I have 20 pounds of shekels here. Wink, wink. I've changed my scale, so it really is 18 pounds. So I'm really getting a bargain. Here's my 20 pounds of shekels. Look at that's on the weight. Look, look, see it? So he's good at both ways. They're, they've got them coming and going. You've met people like that, right? They'll get you coming and going. They'll, they'll, they'll extract everything they can out of you. Well, this is what's happening in, in, happening in Israel. They're swindling people all over the place. And God says, what does the Lord require of you but to do justly? And yet everything they're doing is unjust. Verse 12, for her rich men are full of violence, her inhabitants have spoken lies, and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. We've got problems, friends. The Lord just wants you to do justly, and you've got other things happening. Now, is there any implication for us as we consider what God required of Israel? Does he want us to do justly? The word justly, is the, it's the term justice. Perform justice, not just to be just. It's great, I'm justified. All set. It's, it's more than that. It's to do justice. So you are justified. His justice has, has liberated you. And now you're to demonstrate in real life, in living color, real justice. Now let's take a look at 1 Peter chapter 2 because he gives us a beautiful sample of this. What it looks like in the first century, but it also what it looks like in the 21st century. God's desires are simple. He requires us to do justice. God has already demonstrated his own acts. Then he talks about Israel's acts. In 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, it's a beautiful and encouraging verse of Scripture, but it's also a challenge to us. He says, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims. In other words, this is not your home. 
as those who live in this land as foreigners. Why are we foreigners here? Because our citizenship is where? In heaven, from whence we look for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're look, that's where we belong. In fact, that's where we dwell, in Christ. We're, we're seated at the right hand of the Father in Christ. It's beautiful. But right now we're here. And so as, as pilgrims and sojourners, he says this, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct, what? Honorable. Where? Among the Gentiles. That when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. So Peter is really giving us a New Testament version of Micah chapter 6 and verse 8 to do justice. To do justice. He's saying, listen, as you live here and now in this age, make sure that you haven't become a seclusive society. Christianity is not uh, supposed to be a seclusive society who piously goes about life in secret. Christianity is to be lived out in the world. We should be seeking to live out justice in every environment that we're in. And Peter goes on to describe this. In verses 13 to 17, he talks about our responsibility to obey the government. That's lived out in public, friends. In verses 18 through 25, he goes on to tell us that in our work environment, as servants or masters, we are to, to live out who we say we are. Abstain from fleshly lusts which war against your soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles so that they can observe your good works and as a result say, there's something, there's something to what he believes because it's, it's demonstrated. And so they, too, come to the, the understanding of who Jesus is and they glorify God in the day of visitation. So that's lived out in public as well. And then in chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, husbands to, excuse me, wives to, to, to live out their faith in their home with their husband. And then in verse 7, husbands living out their faith in their home to their wife. See, Christianity isn't, isn't a private endeavor. As you get into verses 8 through 12, I'd say the implication is that we live out justice in the church. He talks about one another, do, doing this to one another, one another, one another. That's church life, right? So that the world can see. Listen, if you're, if you're just only in secret, it is your light shining. He says, what does the Lord require of you but to do justly or to do justice? Where can you do justice? Well, you can do justice here. You can do justice in your home. You can do justice in your workplace. You can do justice in your neighborhood. You can do justice wherever you go, wherever it is. Small things. It doesn't have to be the big things. You know, everyone wants to get on this big, big endeavor. Oh, uh, Christianity is going to take over this thing, and, and we're going to have this, this great effort. It doesn't have to be that. It really more, more likely is going to be, be effective as it insidiously demonstrates itself. And I don't, I don't mean insidiously like deceptively, but just one person impacting another person. They see you doing justice in your workplace. They're like, oh, that's not how I go about things. I do it a little different than that. Well, he's always working. She's always working. She's, she's, look at, she, she's never disrespecting the boss. Look, he's never doing this. And they, they see something going on and they might start to, to question you. What are they going to question? The reason for the hope that's within you. 
And you and I want to sanctify the Lord God in our hearts so that we can give an answer to everyone who asks us a reason for the hope that's within us. We want to do it with meekness and fear, right? Because we recognize the, the gravity of the situation, the gospel. The gospel is on the line in our workplace. The gospel is on the line in our, our homes. Listen, don't ever think that, that your marriage is simply you and your wife. The gospel is being lived out to your children. And if you don't have any of them, it's lived out to your neighbors. You want to give up on your marriage? You know what you're doing? You're giving up on the gospel. You say, the gospel doesn't work. It's not good enough. It can't save my marriage. Listen, to do justice in every environment we find ourselves in. That's what the Lord requires of you. He requires the gospel. That's good news because he's the one that supplied the gospel. That's called grace, friends. Back in Micah chapter 6, please. Not only... Does the Lord require us to do justly, but to love mercy, to love mercy. The word there, it's, it's, to me, it's the most rich and wonderful Hebrew word there is, chesed, chesed. And it means mercy, as it's translated here. It means steadfast, covenant loyalty, and it means loving kindness. God tells you and I to love mercy, to love faithfulness, steadfast covenant loyalty, to love loving kindness. Listen, you ready for this? Everyone loves mercy when it's distributed to them. There is not a soul on this earth that doesn't like mercy distributed to them. So what is he talking about? He's talking about demonstrating mercy. He's talking about, friends, being a channel of God's mercy. There are two New Testament words. They're in the Old Testament too, but two New Testament in my mind for the sake of this discussion that are parallel. The term long-suffering. Now, long-suffering and patience are very similar words, right? But they are different. Patience, almost universally, if properly translated in our, in our Bibles, patience almost universally means patient endurance with circumstances. Long-suffering, on the other hand, if properly translated, almost universally will be patient endurance with people. You see the difference? Long-suffering is this person is attacking me, they're passively aggressive toward me, they're undermining me, whatever the case may be, they're doing something that hurts me. Long-suffering is to patiently endure them. The, another word that's very important is the word, is a good one, you've never heard this one before, love, love. Love is self-sacrificial, willingness to care for the needs of someone else regardless of their care for you. Now both long-suffering and love are types of the fruit of the Spirit. So if we're talking about loving the distribution of long-suffering, loving the distribution of love, it only comes as a result of the Spirit's work in our lives, which consequently brings us back in our minds to Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse 12, where the, God says He requires this. What? Fear the Lord your God. Fearing God is the surrender of my mind and my heart to Him. That's the same thing that walking in the Spirit is. That's the same thing as walking by faith, walking by grace, walking in the gospel. 
any of those terms that we like to, to use, and we do like to use them, they all relate to the fear of the Lord. It's a surrender of the will. You want to love? You want to love love? Do you want to love mercy? You want to love long-suffering? You want to be a distributor of those things? It's going to be because you fear the Lord or you're surrendered to the Lord because you're walking in the power of the Spirit. So he tells us, these are the things God requires of you, to do justice, to love mercy, and thirdly, to walk humbly with your God. To walk humbly with your God. So there's justice, mercy, and humility. I want you to turn to a passage in the Bible. It's a familiar passage. You're going to like it. You're going to enjoy it. And I want to, I want to tell you, most of the time when we look at, at this passage, we think salvation. And it's true, it's about salvation. But it's about more than salvation. It's about everyday life. Take a look at Luke 18, uh, beginning in verse 9. It says, Also he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, and I would say to himself and by himself, and it remained all by himself, and it never got anywhere other than to himself, except for this record. God... I thank you that I am not like this, uh, like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this guy over here, this tax collector. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. Isn't that beautiful? It just sounds so spiritual, doesn't it? And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven. You know why? He's... He's ashamed, but he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Listen, friends, that is not just about coming unto salvation. That, that, is, that has got to be our life. That has got to be today and tomorrow and the next day. God, I'm not worthy of the grace and the mercy you pour out. Be merciful to me. I'm a sinner. I need your help. I want to walk with you. I want to, I want to demonstrate your grace. I, I want to do justice. And I want to love mercy. And I want to humbly walk with you. Every day, day in and day out, that kind of a humble walk is what is required of us because that's when God's grace shines through us. By nature, we care about justice for us. We care about mercy for us. We want those around us to be humble toward us. But the Spirit produces something altogether different in our lives. When we're walking in the Spirit, there will be evidence. Three evidences that are here. Acts that promote justice. A Spirit that demonstrates mercy. A walk that demonstrates humility. We want to look at the last section of Micah 6, just for a moment. And before we even read it, I just want to give you the long and the short of verses 13 through 16. The long and the short of it is this. When we fail to allow God to do his work in us, we will not be satisfied. When we fail to allow God to do his work in us, we will not be satisfied. Listen to what he says in verse 13 and following. Therefore, I will also make you sick by striking you and make you desolate because of your sins. Listen carefully. You shall eat but not be satisfied. Hunger shall be in your midst. You may carry some away, but shall not save them. And what you do, rescue, I will give over to the sword. You shall sow, but not reap. You shall tread the olives, but not anoint yourself yourselves with oil. 
You shall make sweet wine, but not drink wine. For the statutes of Omri are kept. All the works of Ahab's house are done. And you walk in their counsels that I may make you a desolation and your inhabitants a hissing. Therefore you shall bear the reproach of my people. I want to ask you a question. Have you been satisfied lately? Have you been satisfied? Do you feel content? Are you content? If not, I propose to you that maybe you have been seeking satisfaction in some other place than our all-satisfying Savior, Jesus Christ. Satisfaction does not come in any other way. This passage, Micah 6, contrasts Israel's lack of righteous acts with God's continual righteous acts. Never forget, his righteous acts are not abstract or detached from our world. His acts are for us. He redeemed us. He has provided leadership for us. He thwarts our oppressor. And he gives us victory. Truly, we believe what Paul said when he wrote in Romans chapter 8, verses 31 and 32, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Listen, there's only one place for satisfaction. It's found in Christ. He's given us the very best. There's nothing else we should desire. When we recognize what God has done, we humbly say, God, you're for me. You're for us? Look what you've done for us? How would any of us ever say, God, you've mistreated me? God, you're wearying me. Instead, he has delivered us from mistreatment and being wearied. He's redeemed us by the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. This is what we sing every Sunday. We sing about the blood of Christ. We sing about the sacrifice of Christ, the grace of God that comes. If God's for us, who can be against us? Let's pray together. Father, as we try to make sense of all that's been said, we pray that you would help us to, first and foremost, humble ourselves before you. That we would be like the tax collector who does not take for granted all that you've done, but instead we come humbly before you asking for your mercy, knowing we'll receive it, and asking for your grace, knowing that it's abundant. We want to do justice. We want to love mercy, and we want to walk humbly before you. Enable us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.